Well, we're in the book of James to start the new year. We're going to cover James 1, 2 to 12, so a little overlap. And we'll cover some new ground today. And you'll understand why the need for the overlap during the sermon. So James chapter 1, verses 2 to 12. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith, without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position, And the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love Him. Amen. If your Bible puts in paragraph breaks, it sounds like I shouldn't have included verse 12 in this section because that starts a new paragraph in my Bible. Remember, the original Greek had no paragraphs, no punctuation, and all the letters and uh, words actually ran together. doesn't mean it was confusing as to where you're supposed to stop or put a period. We can figure those things out. But there's a lot of guesswork involved when you try to write an English Bible and put in paragraph breaks or even paragraph headings. How many people have Bibles that put maybe some paragraph headings to kind of help you know what the theme is. But that's somebody else's opinion as to what the theme of that paragraph is. Somebody else's opinion as to where those paragraph breaks ought to be. Remember also the chapter in in verse numbering, not in the original. They're there to help us find a verse quickly. So... It seems like this section about the rich brother and the poor brother seems out of place. How does this work in the flow of what James is teaching? And many commentators have said the book of James is kind of like Proverbs, where it's pithy little uh, sayings, uh, pieces of wisdom just kind of tacked together. I don't agree with that. And even those commentators would say, yet there seems to be some kind of flow. It's just hard to put your finger on what the flow is. And that, that's true. I want to show you today exactly where this 
rich and poor teaching fits in the flow of James's teaching. It seems out of place, but it's not at all. And when you look at the words in the Greek, you see that he uses a lot of the same words over and over to tie it all together. But English translators sometimes choose to translate those Greek words with different English synonyms. So you might have uh, endure, and then later the same Greek word will be persevere. You might have trial, and then the same Greek word later is temptation. And those are uh, good English words to translate, those Greek words, but I think it interrupts the flow. The way Hebrew writers like to write is to use words and repeat them later in order to make connections. Now, when you took English growing up, your teacher would tell you in your essay, stop using the same word over and over, right? And you'd have to write your essay with a thesaurus. But this is a very typical Jewish thing to do when you write. But to make maybe the English more readable to our English ears, they might use different synonyms here. And then it looks like it's broken up the flow. It's not choppy at all. This whole idea about the rich man and the poor man fits perfectly in his argument about who is wise. Who is wise? Godly wisdom versus earthly wisdom. Earthly wisdom assumes that riches will make for the happy life. Godly wisdom has something else to teach us. So that's where we're going today. And I want to start out by asking you to consider happiness. Who among us would like to be happy in 2015? And not every hand goes up because you're like, oh, it's a trick question, and I'm a Christian, and Christians aren't supposed to be happy. Yeah. Well, it's okay to be happy. It's not a sin. It's your attitude towards happiness and how you pursue it that could become sinful. We understand that our founding fathers were, were Christian men, most of them, not all of them. And when they crafted the Declaration of Independence, they talked about being able to uh, pursue life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Before I became a Christian, when I was in college, I joined a fraternal organization, which some people call a frat. It is a fraternal organization of brothers. It's just guys who need friends. And uh, my fraternity was originally founded by Christian men, and in our creed that we'd say before every meeting, the creed would end with, uh, wherein I may more... Oh, I'm sorry... If we do all these things in our creed, it should bring about that happy life wherein I may more truly love my fellow man, serve my country, and obey my God. That's shocking, maybe, if you have your own ideas about what fraternities are. Now, I will tell you that my fraternity brothers were not seeking after this happy life. They had their own definition of the happy life. And we just paid lip service to the creed. When we got to the part that said happy life, we thought that it was so trite and kind of ridiculous to say it, we would all go up on our toes and say, to bring about that happy life. 
and uh, we would just mumble the rest. I don't think there was a Christian man among us in that, that fraternity house. When I went on Google and, and typed in, what is the happy life, 15,400,000 hits came up. That's the problem with pursuing the happy life. Everyone has their own definition And even those who have a definition will find that happiness is fleeting and fickle. It's here today, gone tomorrow, and our sin nature will change and move the cheese. The thing that used to bring me happiness today is no longer bringing me happiness. I'm on to something else. Or I need more of whatever this thing that brought me happiness If you married for happiness, that's a beautiful thing to tell your spouse. But if you've been married for any number of years, you know that maybe happiness is the wrong word. You've got that, um, that, that good marriage Bible study called um, Sacred Marriage. And the byline says, maybe God wants us to be holy more than happy. Maybe the pursuit of holiness will bring about a type of happiness. At 15,400,000 hits, the fact that it was a round number tells me that they just stopped really counting after a while. And I did look at some of them, and, and some of it we would agree with biblically and other stuff we wouldn't, and that's, that's the problem. It's truth mixed with error. And you'll also notice that we're living in a country now where there's a large portion of people who will say, I can't be happy until you change your pursuit of happiness to mine. And I will use the power of the government to force you to define happiness the way I define happiness. So we're no longer living in this country where everyone's pursuing uh, happiness independently. I can't be happy unless... Fill in the blank. And we understand from the Bible that that is our sin nature. God put man in the garden and blessed him with the best possible life imaginable because God imagined it and made it happen. And the temptation that came upon man was, maybe there's something better. Maybe there's something better. Maybe God's holding back. He said, I'm happy now, but I would be even happier And man chose to eat from a tree that God said would bring unhappiness and death thinking it would bring the opposite. And this is this sin nature that we've inherited. It's time to stop talking about sin in terms of just, I did things wrong or I disobeyed. The question is, why would you even want to disobey in the first place? If you can't answer that question, you're never going to deal with your sin problem. I often think about what are... What are the three things or the five things I want my kids to know before they leave the house? There's so much to teach them. And one of them is that they would understand their sin nature. I can warn them about the world and warn them about the world system and warn them about worldliness and all the dangers that await them out there. But if they don't understand that there's something working inside of them that even makes that enticing, then I have not prepared them for life. 
we think the danger is out there, but if there wasn't something inside of us that would even want that, then it wouldn't be a danger. You would just go out into the world and you'd say, don't want it, don't need it, don't have to have it. When we come to God's Word as Christians and we say, okay, God, I believe that you are truth and that you've revealed truth and I can't know you unless you reveal yourself to me and I can't even know me unless you reveal myself to me. Tell me about me. And he doesn't waste any time, does he? By the third chapter, he's telling us what's wrong with us. And the ironic thing about what's wrong with us is that our sin nature tempts us to judge God and be the final say of what reality is and isn't, what wisdom is and isn't. So the irony looks like this. God comes to us and says, you know what your problem is? Here's what your problem is. Your problem is that you have a tendency to not want to listen to authority. And our response is, well, let me think about that for a second. No, I don't think so. I don't think that's my problem. You've just demonstrated that God is right. And in our pride, we don't want God to be right. So we're trapped. If I disagree with them, I've proved his point. If I agree with them, then he's right and I'm wrong. And we want to be right on our own terms. And coming to Christ means laying down that right we think we have to be the final say, to have the last word. God gets the first word and the last word. And if this is who he's revealed us to be, this sin nature we've inherited, then we need to cultivate in ourselves a suspicion of our own thoughts, a suspicion of our own desires, a suspicion of our own wisdom. Is this really godly wisdom or is this my wisdom posing as godly wisdom because I know the right words to say, I know the Christianese, I know the right verses. When people come in to talk to me for counseling and they're struggling, it is so hard often for mature believers to, to not tell me the answer they know is the right answer. I'm like, okay, I know that's the right answer, but obviously you're not doing the right answer. So tell me what's really going on in your heart. It's okay. You're in a private room. The doors are closed. This is a private conversation. Tell me, what are you really thinking? Trust me, every other human being on the planet has probably thought those thoughts also. Yes, it is embarrassing. But until you're willing to admit what you're thinking, you can't deal with the heart. So James is trying to get to the heart here. He's trying to get to the heart, and he's showing us right away that we have a wrong view of our trials, that we see trials as a nuisance and an obstacle to the happy life. I admit, it's hard for me to be happy in the midst of trials. I want one of those days every day where everything just kind of falls into place. And the weather is just perfect. I want Disneyland every day. I think that's the happy life. Right? It's the happiest place on earth. Uh, yeah. 
until you look at your wallet after you leave. <laughs> they're, they're happy. They've got all your money. We're being honest here. We're being brutally honest. This is, this is the fallen human heart's idea of the happy life. And yet the Bible doesn't really use this concept of happiness. It has a better word. It's called a blessed life. Blessed. Let's look at this word blessed. In the Hebrew, it's barak, ironically. In the New Testament, it's makarios. The Hebrew word most often translated bless is barak, which can mean to praise, congratulate, or salute, and is even used to mean a curse. Depending on where you lean politically, yes, we, we see that. Genesis 1.22 is the first occurrence of the word barak, when God blessed the sea creatures and birds, telling them to be fruitful and multiply in the earth. That was the blessing. Go do what you're designed to do. Have you ever sat and watched birds for a while? They seem really happy. I wouldn't mind being a bird. They kind of just fly around and they don't seem to have many cares. Jealous of the animals. Then he gives a similar blessing to man and woman. Put them on this beautiful planet where there's no sin and says, go have dominion. Created in my likeness, in my image. Be ambassadors for me on my creation. Go enjoy the planet and enjoy one another. That's a happy life. Blessed life. And the blessing was that as long as we do what God has created us to do within the boundaries that He has set out for us, it will be a blessed life. And you understand to some extent that that's your life. Now, because we live in a fallen world, though, there's always sin getting in the way of enjoying the blessed life. We talked about those last week, that we have trials that we bring on ourselves because of our sins. We have trials brought on to us by other people because of their sin. We have trials that just come upon us because, hey, stuff happens. We live in a fallen world. Didn't see that coming. Uh, I didn't need that this week. I had other plans, but... What, I'm supposed to be the one person on the planet that doesn't have unexpected trials pop into my life? That's not the attitude to have. And that's the fourth kind of trial I said we bring into our life, is just through our ignorance, thinking of things in the wrong way. It's a trial in and of itself to expect there not to be trials in life. You're setting yourself up for misery. The other side of the pendulum is the cynic who's, who's saying, well, it's, it's nothing but trials. I've talked to many unbelievers, especially when I was a teacher in high school and the kids go through that cynical, skeptic, brooding, wearing black, listening to dark music. I went through it too, and a lot of you did too. And it's almost like they're saying, I want the happy life, but I don't want it. Well, why don't you want it? Because then I'll have to be happy. 
And I really like this whole brooding teen angst, you know. And some people grow out of it and some people don't. It just becomes their disposition. And then they become university professors. <laughs> and, and, yeah. and they teach a whole new generation how to be skeptical and cynical and question everything and there is no truth and will never be happy. And then they'll charge you an exorbitant amount of money so you can get a degree in that. This blessed life is a lot different than the happy life. It says he, uh, God called Abram to go to the promised land, and he promised to bless him, make his name great, and through him to bless all the families of the earth. And he did. He blessed all the families of the earth through Abram's seed, eventually leading to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Redeemer of all humanity, all the nations. And we do see in general that nations that bless Abram, Israel, live a, a very blessed life. And yet there's also a lot of hardship and turmoil that comes on. The rest of the world doesn't like happy, blessed people. They get jealous of it and they get angry. Have you ever been persecuted just for being happy? When I was a, a school teacher and growing in my faith in Christ, the other teachers, you were supposed to gather in the lounge and complain about the kids and that you weren't paid enough. And, and um, they gave me three more kids today. And, you know, they want to they lengthen the school day. And, and I, would, I would fall into that. And I'd start saying, boy, I can't be happy unless they keep my 20 to 1 ratio in my, my classes. I can't be happy unless da 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 And I finally realized I need to get out of this situation. I'm, they're evangelizing me more than I'm evangelizing them. And it's when we, we left for seminary. I knew I needed equipping. It's weird that the world is after happiness and when they see Christians around them get something better than happiness, they, they get upset. They get upset. That ought to tell you something. How dare you be happy? How dare you be blessed? We don't want to hear about your gospel and your Jesus and all your happiness. Don't you see this world full of misery? Well, of course there's a world full of misery. Let me tell you about Jesus and what he did about it and what he's going to do about it. However, if you will pursue happiness the way the world is pursuing happiness, they'll embrace you. They will in embrace you. Oh, you're on the same rat race the rest of us are on. Just don't get in my way. You know, I'll, if I have to climb over your back to get happiness at your expense, I will. But everybody seems to be getting along better if we're all miserable together. But when somebody who's truly happy and blessed and content in Christ, that's a problem for a lot of the world. It's also very compelling to those who God has opened their eyes and said, I am so done with, with this. I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. What does he have that I don't have? What does she have that I don't? 
And how do I get it? Now they're ready to listen to godly wisdom. And this is the whole thrust of the book of James. It's written to believers knowing that you're going to have some people who think they're believers but aren't really, or who are very immature believers and need godly wisdom. And the thing that's standing in the way both of the unbeliever and the immature believer of moving forward in Christ is this hanging on to your own earthly, worldly wisdom. And so the book is filled with these tests, these trials. You say you believe this, then why do you do this? If you really believe this, it would look like this when you lived it out. And so the considering it all joy and trials, first and foremost, is because it helps me to know whether or not I'm a true believer. How did I do in the trial? How did I do? Did I pass the test? And when, when I pass the test, it strengthens my faith. And the more I pass trials, the more I'm convinced that I know Christ and He knows me. I'm a different man than I was before Christ, certainly. And I'm a different man than I was when I first knew Christ. I handle things differently. I see things differently. I was not a person you would put in the pulpit then. God's done a mighty work in my life. Glory to God. By His grace and His choosing. And He's done this in your life too. And it wasn't through the Disneyland life that He accomplished this. It was through trials. Yesterday, my wife and I went to see Unbroken. Boy, did that guy go through some trials. And at the end of the life, he had the joy of the Lord. They don't mention it so much in the movie, but if you read the book, he he put his faith in Jesus Christ. And how anyone can be that happy after what he went through, that is a miracle. That can only be explained supernaturally. I was inspired. Disturbed and inspired. It's, it's a tough movie to sit through. But I was looking, I told my wife, there's no like romantic comedies or something. I just want something light. <laughs> Knowing that Sunday I would get in the pulpit and preach that the good stuff comes in the hard stuff. So we sat through a hard movie and I was so blessed coming out of, of that film. I'm glad I'm glad this was the only choice. <laughs> so what about this blessed life? What does then the Bible have to say about the blessed life? When you hear James say, blessed is the, the man, that should trigger some Old Testament scriptures in your mind. First and foremost, Psalm 1, right? But even before Psalm 1, When Israel was going to enter the land, Moses read to them all the blessings that would come from obedience and the curses for disobedience. So right away we see that the blessed life is connected to obedience. Obeying God will lead to a blessed life. Now we know as Christians that obeying God sometimes leads to hardship and persecution. 
Does it not? So, hardship and persecution isn't mutually exclusive to the blessed life. You can have the blessed life and life be difficult, hard. There could be persecution, financial struggle, disease, illness, death, suffering around you. The blessed life isn't necessarily what the world would call the happy life. Although you have found, and I have found, that it's not just trial on top of trial on top of trial. God does bless us with wonderful gifts. Love and family and this beautiful creation we get to experience. So he says in Deuteronomy 28.1, Now it shall be, if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all His commandments which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth... All these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. I love that. They will overtake you. Have you found in life, brothers and sisters, that when you pursue God, the blessings overtake you? But when you pursue happiness, it's elusive. It's like a vapor. It's like trying to grasp the wind. Yesterday I was so happy and I think I had life all figured out and today it's gone. I don't know where it went. Nothing changed. Pastors got to go on retreat this year. Annually we go on a retreat. Thank you for blessing us in that way. We went to Ventura Friday. Uh, the weather was amazing, beautiful, sunny, perfect temperature. I was reading James in the morning and the surf was crashing on the rocks and I'm like, oh, there we go. The one who doubts is like the surf of the sea. You know, it's like, I've seen the ocean before, but being able to read God's Word and see the ocean right there and know that James was looking at an ocean too when when he penned this. That 2,000 years of history separates us, but the same ocean. Well, I mean, technically, he's... An ocean's an ocean. I, I get what you're talking about here, James. Thank you, God, for using illustrations in your Word that transcend time. If we wrote the Bible today, it would be filled with so much stuff about computers and TV and, and who knows what they're going to have in 2,000 years if Christ doesn't return. They'll be like, what is, a, what is that? We'll just have the TV implanted in our brain. They used to look at these screens. How inconvenient. The blessings overtake you when you're focused on God and your relationship with God and seeking after God. Don't look now, but He's blessing you. Oh, wow. Look at the blessings. I was commenting this week that raising children is hard and raising children in the Lord is hard in a culture that doesn't want to raise children in the Lord anymore. And you're tempted to give in to the world because you get tired and the world offers you uh, free stuff if you'll just do it their way often. So no, I'm, I'm going to stay at this. And when, I, when we first became Christians and decided to do things differently with our kids, there was pride and fear of man involved. I was so afraid that the world was going to go, you freak, you're going to mess your kids up. And I'm like, oh, I hope my kids 
can handle themselves socially. I don't want to be one of those Christian homeschool families where your kids, you know, can't handle themselves socially. Of course, often they mean is your kids don't know how to get in trouble like all the normal kids. So, but my kids know how to get in trouble just fine. I got the broken arm to prove it. Yeah, Aaron broke his arm this week. Climbing somewhere in the church where he shouldn't be climbing. Those pastor's kids. Oh, so he learned his lesson. <laughs> Let's look at Psalm 1 because I mentioned it. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. This is why we made the decision to raise our children the way we did. We didn't want, as parents, to walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the path of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. We certainly didn't want our kids to sit in those places. And when we got past, finally, the pride and fear of man of our kids turning out a certain way and just concentrating on pleasing the Lord and loving our children and enjoying them, they grew up, and they're pretty neat kids. I think they're pretty neat, but people tell me, you have pretty neat kids. And I'm like, wow, the blessing is overtaking me. When I, when I stopped saying, I have to have my kids look a certain way and just uh, concentrated on seeking the Lord's wisdom and obeying the Lord and loving my children, the things that I wanted overtook me. Don't look now, but they're turning out well. Oh, they're not perfect. But I see humility in their hearts and a love for the Lord, and, and um, they're teachable. Oh, I can sit down with them and talk to them, and, and they'll listen. What a blessing that is. All these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. If you're looking for happiness and you're going to ask the world and you're going to ask the world, how do I get happiness? You're going to walk in the counsel of the wicked and stand in the path of sinners and sit in the seat of scoffers. They're not going to go to God's word to give you counsel. Because people are created in the image of God, they'll get a couple things right. A blind squirrel happens upon a nut here and there, right? You know the saying. I was reading some of those Google happy life entries, and I'm like, that I agree with, you know. Forbes magazine, number one way to have a happy life is to give to others. Amen. And then he had his PayPal account. (laughs) Okay, if the world knows that, you know, where did they get that wisdom from? They probably did a study and they found that people who are generous with their money and give seem to be happier. Imagine that. They're not worried about hanging on to every last penny. God says, uh, the blessed man, his delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law he meditates day and night. Don't think of law as these are the things I have to do. Law, the whole counsel of God. The, the, uh, the wisdom of God. 
Teach me your ways, O Lord. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and in whatever he does he prospers. Don't think money when we say prosper. Could be. Doesn't have to be. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Think of Job. He would have, at the beginning of the book of Job, what the world would call the happy life. And God says to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And Satan says to the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? No, it's because you give him everything. You've blessed him with every earthly blessing. And God's willing to wager with Satan that that is not the reason Job fears God. There's something deep down in his heart is the reason he fears and loves the Lord. And so you know the story. God allows Satan to kind of turn Job's life upside down in a big way. And Job's counselors come to him as friends and say, All this ruin in your life has got to be because you're sinning. If you want the happy life, you need to repent. The reason you're poor and destitute and sick is because you've been sinning. Now, sometimes that does lead to unhappiness and poverty and misery. Certainly, sin will do that. But James is going to teach us that don't think that wealth is a sign of God's blessing in your life. How do you preach that sermon to the rest of the world? Most people don't live like we do, brothers and sisters, around the world. How do you bring the gospel to the rest of the world? I don't understand how the prosperity gospel spreads. I mean, I understand people are like, okay, if I, if I trust in Jesus, I'll be rich and he'll pull me out of poverty. But it's, if that's the case, then... God's not working. It's not working. Most of the world is in poverty. In fact, James is going to argue that oftentimes our wealth gets in the way of getting closer to God. After Job repents, and what does he repent of? He repents of saying, I have more wisdom than God. He says, God, I know you're God. I'm not supposed to question you, but if you just let me be your counselor for a moment here, let me tell you where you've got things wrong in my life. And and God says, "Who, who is this man trying to be my counselor? And for like 20 chapters, where were you, Job, when I created the universe out of nothing? Where were you when? And on and on and on and on it goes. And finally Job says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have declared that which I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Here now, and and I will speak, I will ask you, and you will instruct me. That's, that's, a, that's not a command. That's a place of humility. God, I will, ask, I will do the asking of the questions and you will, 
you will do the answering because you have the answers. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. See, through Job's suffering, now he really knows God personally. And isn't that the blessed life, to know God personally? And if God is telling us that the best way to know Him personally is through trials and through the fellowship of His sufferings, which is counterintuitive to everything we hear, Not only do you have to accept this and say, I know this and I could pass a Bible quiz, but you have to embrace it. You have to know it in your heart. And the only way to know it in your heart is to go through it. I've been hearing about all kinds of trials everyone's been going through. That's the the, uh, blessing and curse of Facebook. You find out what is going on in everybody's life and the trials of the whole community end up kind of heaped on you. You end up hurting for everybody. And in fact, one congregant said, Pastor Brent needs to stop preaching James because I can't handle any more trials this week. (laughs) Well, consider it all joy. You're going to grow so close to God and your faith is going to be strengthened. You're going to come out on the other side of the trial and say, I really do know God. I really do, because I got through that and I still love him and still trust him. In fact, I trust him even more. I thought I would trust him and love him more if everything went well in my life. But the truth of the matter is, I trust him and love him more when he allows trials in my life. Let's admit it, when everything's going well in your life, don't you tend to ignore him? You forget to thank him, or you become discontent and ungrateful and you want just a little bit better, just a little bit better. So we woke up at the beach Saturday morning and it was overcast and rainy and I, I was like, oh man, really? Come on. Just one more sunny morning before we have to go up to the cold. We were halfway back to Tehachapi and I said, am I a bad person if I don't want to be home yet? not ready. I love my kids. I'm not ready to go home yet. This is, I'm not ready either. And we said, let's go to a movie. And my mom who was wa- and dad who were watching the kids said, oh, you guys are back early. Why don't you go see a movie? And I'm like, oh, that's a sign from God right there. <laughs> so let's go see something fun and happy and cheery. Any romantic comedies playing? Any comedy? She said, no. So we went to see Unbroken. And it was a great choice. I was so uplifted by a movie that was so difficult to, to watch. To know that this man actually lived and existed and went through this. All kinds of thoughts were filling my mind about who am I to complain about anything? And how much men sacrifice to give us what we have today and how this generation's many want to just throw throw it all away. It was fought for. Difficult fight. So many gave their lives. And that man ended his life with such a smile on his face. He was a blessed man. The world wouldn't say so, but he would say, I'm a blessed man. 
Proverbs 3.13, Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding, for the gain from her is better than gain from silver, and her profit better than gold. Wisdom's better than riches. According to the Bible, we should rather be wise and poor than rich and foolish. Of course, you're saying what I'm saying. Isn't there a third option? How about... Rich and wise. Well, Solomon was rich and wise. And look what ended up happening to him. An abundance of riches corrupts. problem with riches is it taps into our pride in such a way that we begin to believe our own press about ourselves. I must be a pretty good person to have amassed this wealth. And we tend not to depend on God because I can buy my way out of my trials and I can purchase happiness. And if you don't have a lot of money, you become jealous and you covet those that have it, thinking, if I could buy what they buy, I'd be happy all the time too. But those aren't the happiest, blessed people I know. Not saying that if you're rich, you're a sinner, or you're not blessed, or you're not happy. It's all the heart attitude. I know some pretty wretched poor people, and some pretty wretched rich people, and some pretty wonderful blessed rich people, and wonderful blessed poor people. And like Paul in Philippians 4, the difference is being able to say, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances God puts me in. Whether great abundance or great poverty, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Meaning, the money, me being able to do what God's called me to do in life and do it with a smile on my face is not dependent on money. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's a, it's a scripture connected to money and to, to uh, wealth. So, Proverbs is telling us to get wisdom more than anything else. Well, that makes sense. If you don't have wisdom, all else is lost. If you don't have godly wisdom, all else is lost. If you can't get the Bible right, if you can't get godly wisdom right, you're not going to get anything else right. Wisdom is supreme, therefore get wisdom. That's great logic right there. Proverbs 4, 7. Wisdom is the most important thing. Another way that uh, one of the translations puts this is, um, what is the start of wisdom? And then it says, getting wisdom. (laughs) In other words, you won't chase after wisdom until you have enough wisdom to know that getting wisdom is the thing you should be trying to get. Or another way, the fear of the Lord is beginning of knowledge. Until you have reverence and awe for God and know that a relationship with Him and His knowledge is better than anything else, you're not going to get knowledge until you take that first step. Have you taken that step? Is today the day, finally? You may know the gospel and you may have made a profession of faith and, and that's all it takes to be saved, but the fruit of 
and demonstration of true saving faith is that you can affirm what you're hearing today. God really knows better than I do. And my sin nature tells me I know better than He knows. I repent and humble myself. God loves me. He died for me. Whatever He's commanding me to do and whatever He's ordained for me in my life has got to be what is best for me. I trust in that. I must trade in all the earthly wisdom I've accumulated over the years and trade it in for the treasure of God Himself and His wisdom. Esteem her. We're personifying wisdom as a woman, which I like, because I like women. So, esteem her, and she will exalt you. Embrace her, and she will honor you. She will set a garland of grace on your head and present you with a crown of splendor. What does James say in James 1.12? Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life. Here's this crown metaphor James is borrowing from the Old Testament. Why does anyone do what they do? They expect there to be a reward at the end. What is the reward? Some kind of happiness. Something that's going to bring me happiness. Athletes compete for a crown. That glory of, I won. I'm the best. At least until next season. But as Christians, we're promised the crown of life. An imperishable crown. And that crown is Christ Himself. We get Christ. That's the prize. That's the blessed life. You get Christ. You get to be like Him. Perfectly obeying the Father. Perfectly loving the Father. Being in perfect community. Thinking the Father's thoughts after Him. Having His wisdom. When we go from the Old Testament to the New, we see Jesus launching His Sermon on the Mount. How does He start it with? The Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Because of me. It's an important ending. If people insult you and persecute you because of you, then you deserve it. But if it's because of your faith in Christ, then you're blessed. This doesn't sound anything like the happy life the world is offering. This is a picture of somebody who so badly wants a relationship with God but knows his sin stands in the way. I am spiritually poor. This isn't a financially poor person per se. Could be. Poor in spirit. I'm mourning. I'm mourning over my sin. Gentle. I'm humble. I hunger for righteousness. 
I need mercy. I want peace. I want to be a peacemaker. I want peace between me and God and me and others. This is the blessed life to be at peace with people. We like to use the phrase, all is right with the world. Every once in a while I get to get a taste of that. Don't you too? Every once in a while you get a little taste of you feel like everything is right for the world, but it's so fleeting and then that feeling is gone. This is what we're hungering for. For God to restore things back to when all is right with the world. I'm at peace. I'm the the blessed man. Before the fall, when Adam and Eve had the blessed life. No hiding, no fig leaves, no blaming, no guilt, no sin, no evading God. That is what we want. And how do we get closer and closer to that? According to James, blessed is a man who perseveres under trials. How do I know I'm not still that guy that's chasing after the happy life instead of a child of God yearning for the blessed life? James says when you go through trials and you come out of the trial on the other side and you pass the test and your faith is strengthened. You get endurance, perseverance, knowing that the testing in your faith produces endurance, and then let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So what's the whole money thing have to do with this? Is it just stuck in there for no reason? Look at James 2, 2 to 4. You've got trials and perseverance, or trials and endurance, and then you get to James... I'm sorry, not two. That should say one. I wish I could fix that right right here. No one called me out for a service. He carries that language of trials into verse 12, and the word perseverance into verse 12. And a lot of your English translations, again, change the word. And that messes up with messes the flow. I know in the King James it goes from trials to temptation. Blessed is the man who perseveres under temptation. It's the same word in the Greek. It's parasmos. And perseverance is the same word all the way through. Hupomeno. He's meaning to connect these together and make this sandwich so we'll look inside the sandwich and say, well, then how is this going to work, James? Glad you asked. Here is what you're going to need. Verse 5, you need wisdom from God. Verses 6 and 8, do not doubt. You can't commingle your earthly man-centered wisdom with God's wisdom and expect that you're going to go anywhere in your faith. It's like you have your foot on the brake and the gas pedal simultaneously. But worse than that, it's like you can put your car in drive and reverse at the same time and hit the gas pedal for both. It doesn't work that way. You can't say, God, I trust you. I need your wisdom to get through this trial. But, yeah, I know it's not really going to help. But I know it's the right answer. These are the people that I see in my office who they say, I know this is what I'm supposed to say. I'm like, but you don't believe that. Come on, let's be honest. You don't believe that's the answer here. You know that's the biblical answer, but you don't trust in it. You still trust in your own answers more than God's. 
And then he puts in this thing about wealth, and the whole point of the wealth here is something we can all identify with. Who doesn't have to deal with money on a daily basis? It is a huge part of our life. Wealth is not an indicator that you are blessed by God. Don't confuse the happy life with riches, the blessed life. In fact, wealth can be a hindrance to persevering in your trials. Why? Because you'll depend on your wealth to get you out of the trial instead of depending on God. Or you'll, you'll say, if I was just rich, I wouldn't keep landing myself in these trials. So you pursue money thinking that all of your trials will go away. They won't. This is a hard lesson to learn and we have to learn it constantly. My family just is learning this lesson in a very special way God had ordained for us. We have had uh, quite a few unexpected medical expenses in the last few years. Kids, what are you going to do? They get hurt. And so he said, okay, this year is going to be the year where we get financially healthy in the area of our, our hospital needs. Hey, we got new insurance at the church here, and we're with Kaiser now, and these are all good things. And Aaron broke his arm again. Just Wednesday. We didn't even, barely even get into 2015. And if you have Kaiser, you know when you check in, they immediately start charging you the copays. And every time they order another test, you have to pay the copay right there. And so. I'm like, well, there goes the nest egg, right? And I'm like, and I know what I'm preaching on Sunday. That's going to empty out our HSA account by February. I, I, I see it coming. But we're just going to have to depend on him. There's the double-minded man. Right? Well, we're just going to have to depend on God, I guess. But it sure would be nice to have a chunk of money there. But my attitude was so much better this time than the last time he broke his arm, which was just a year ago. <laughs> it's the other arm. Like, okay, I see what he's doing here. I, okay, well, you know what? We're probably not going to get to go on our trip to the beach with the other pastors. He's going to need surgery. But in God's providence, the surgeon, the orthopedist came and he said, we never come from the ER to urgent care. We never come over. But he was a single guy on his way home after work, and they paged him at just the right time. And he stopped, and he said, no, nah, I could do this right here. It was gruesome, you know, they moving the bones around. And he said, you know what, I don't know if I got it. Let's take one more x-ray. I don't think I got it, but I have this uh, OR room open tomorrow morning. I'm like, well, they're... There goes our trip then. Ah, that's okay. That's okay. If this is what God has for us, I'm going to trust him. But the bones were lined up, and Aaron was happy, and he's broken an arm before, so he's like, no big deal. I know what to do. And my parents are home, and my mom's a retired nurse, and we left for the beach. Don't judge me. <laughs> we left for the beach. So then how can James say 
let the brother of humble circumstances glory in his high position. He's, he's saying, don't think because you're poor that you're in a low position, maybe according to the world, but you're in a high position according to God because you have to depend on him. And that's what draws us closer to God. So that's a good thing. And the rich man should glory in his humiliation, not in his riches, but he should be excited when God starts draining his bank account and bringing him low because money is like the grass. It's just going to pass away. If it's not a broken arm, it'll be something. That's not to say make yourself destitute on purpose and don't use wise financial planning and not to be a good steward. All of those things are true. But don't think that if you get your 401k to a certain level, you'll have the happy life. Look what happened five years ago. Yeah, everyone's 401ks. Sorry if that happened to you. Very sorry. But God says to glory in that. Can't take it with you. And you really didn't need to leave anything for your kids anyways. They would have spent it like in a week. (laughs) What you took a lifetime to amass, they would have just spent it like that. So, let me uh, turn the slides off. I just wanted you to consider not waiting for God to humiliate you when it comes to your finances. There's a thing called sacrificial giving, a concept taught in the Bible, that if we depend on God more when we have less, then you don't have to wait for God to give you less. You can give more to the kingdom now. Go find a missionary out on the wall and grab one of those cards and Yes, the church gives to our missions, gives to our missionaries. You put money in the offering plate. I know you tithe. If you're not giving regularly, that's a great place to start giving sacrifice. Well, we don't have the money to give regularly. You do. You give sacrificially until it hurts. Give till it hurts. And by hurt, that means maybe you don't have your direct TV anymore. Or, or you don't eat out twice a week. Maybe you eat out once a week. I don't know. It's between you and God. It's your family. It's your budget. But it's His money. And He's wanting to bless you by bringing you into a closer walk with Him, which means becoming more dependent on Him. So, application. If you're poor and and you feel like you can't be happy until you have money, consider this verse. You can be blessed and happy in your poverty. If you're rich, don't think that that is what is making you happy. Rich people, I hear, are often worrying about losing their riches. Sounds, sounds like a difficult place to be in. So don't assume the grass is greener. I know if you're in poverty, you're like, yeah, but I'd like to try that other side of the hill. <laughs> And it's hard to hear the rich say, hey, it's not all it's cut out to be. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So um, consider God showing you where you can put yourself financially so you have to depend on Him. Let's pray.
Father, this is difficult teaching for us. We, we, we acknowledge that. Your ways are higher than ours. We've been influenced by our own flesh and by the world to think happiness is locked up in the pursuit of material things and wealth and uh, trial-free life. And you are telling us not only something different here, but 180 degrees different. That the blessed life is the life where one perseveres under trials and sees that their faith in you is genuine. That we will love you no matter what because we trust you. We're going to pray, Lord, a difficult prayer that you would do whatever it takes in our life and bring whatever trials necessary to draw us close to you and rid us of dependence on self and our own good works, our own righteousness, our own cleverness, our own savvy, our own giftedness, that we would repent of all that and declare it all filthy rags and embrace our righteousness in Christ and embrace you and you alone as our greatest prize. We ask you you do this for our good and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you.